Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Wednesdays at SSP, a podcast produced by MIT's Security Studies Program here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. My name is Chris Burns, and I produce this series. This podcast features recordings of our program's Wednesday seminar series, where prominent voices in political science are invited to give a lecture on their current research. Today's featured guest is Dr. Melissa Lee. Dr. Lee is Assistant Professor of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton University, where she studies the international and domestic politics of state building and state development. In this week's episode, Dr. Lee focuses on sovereign authority through the lens of the United States Civil War. She presents a working paper which looks at the grammatical shift in the United States from a plural to a singular noun as a measure of imagined sovereignty. Please excuse the poor audio quality in this episode. I am presenting a working paper co-authored with my um, colleagues, Nan Zhang, who uh, went to Stanford with me and is now at the Mannheim Center for European Social Research, as well as a former Princeton undergrad, uh, Tilman Hirschenreiter, who is in, currently in a gap year. Um, before I get started on this, uh, telling you about this project, what I want to do is to put it in context of my larger research agenda. Many of you probably know me from my work uh, on foreign subversion and how foreign subversion weakens the state. Um, most of my research is about the politics of state strength and state weakness, both from an international and a comparative perspective. And so crippling Leviathan and some of my work about international state building is about the role of foreign actors in shaping state development. But an important strand of my work seeks to understand how today's strong states actually became strong. And so it explores different facets of stateness from a much more comparative and historical perspective. And this project, which is about state development and contestation over sovereignty in the United States context, really fits in that second bucket of work, the comparative and historical origins of today's strong states. What of, oh, let's see this. Okay. It again? It was working when we tested it. So one of the most important developments in uh, the history of state formation is the emergence of this idea of sovereignty, right, or this notion that there exists a final political authority with the right to make and enforce binding rules. And while most people no longer dispute whether sovereignty should exist, whether authority should exist, what they do dispute is the configuration of sovereign authority. That is, where should sovereign authority be located? And how should it be structured? Historically, violence played a role in settling these debates about the proper location and structure of sovereignty. And in wars over sovereignty, such as the English Civil War, for example, one vision of how sovereign authority is to be uh, organized triumphed over an alternative and resulted in the institutionalization of the victor's vision, sovereignty. However, sovereignty requires more than institutions, requires more than institutionalization, because it ultimately rests on the recognition and acceptance of the governed. Right? So an institutionalization does not automatically apply that ideational acceptance will be forthcoming. And so in other words, I think of sovereignty as both institutional and ideational, and it is something that exists when people think it exists. And so our paper explores how war shapes the popular imagination of sovereignty. 
And what we do in this paper is we develop three possible effects of how war may uh, bring about this ideational shift. Our first possibility is what we call the abandonment idea, in which the losers in war reconcile themselves to the winner's vision of sovereignty and accept, ultimately accept that vision of sovereignty. A second possibility is what we call uh, the valence or reinforcement hypothesis, in which the fighting for a particular vision or ideal of sovereignty causes both sides to harden their uh, attachment to that ideational uh, notion of sovereignty. And a third possibility is a much more, uh, uh, it, it emphasizes uh, the effects of war on a subset of individuals, individuals that we call ide uh, ideological entrepreneurs, who are then emboldened by the outbreak of violence and disruption to promote their own ideal of sovereignty much more vigorously. Now, we test uh, the effects of war on imagined sovereignty in the context of 19th century America. And as we all know, 19th century America is a period of profound political and ideational transformation. This is a case um, where the contest between two competing visions of sovereignty erupted into the violence of the US Civil War. Now, the historical setting of, this, of our analysis gives us a very long period to observe ideational changes in the population. But one disadvantage of this site is that we lack public opinion data about how people actually think about sovereignty. And to circumvent this problem, what we do instead is we examine changes in the civic language as a proxy for how Americans think about the sovereignty of the United States. Since we can't get into their heads, we instead look at how they speak. And we use this change, um, which, a particular grammatical change, in which the United States stops being a plural noun and starts becoming a singular noun as a proxy for changes in how people think about sovereignty. That is, we no longer think of the United States as being an entity of multiple equal sovereign states, rather we think of it as having a single sovereign authority. Now we trace the evolution of this is our shift um, over the course of the 19th century. And we can show that there is a powerful civil war effect. That is, the war does shape popular imaginations of sovereignty, but that it is really concentrated among this subset of individuals that we call the ide ideological entrepreneurs. And in this case, those individuals are the Northern Republicans. Okay. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I really like about this project is that this finding about the ideational component of sovereignty and the role of these ideological entrepreneurs in pursuing or um, pushing this change is that it really highlights the mismatch between the ideational aspects of sovereignty and the institutional aspects of sovereignty. Much of the state building scholarship that I engage with and including my own work has really focused on institutions, right? The institutions of sovereignty and the effect of war on the institutional development of the state. But again, institutions alone do not make a state. And the institutional changes that come about from war do not necessarily produce ideational change. And this is a contribution of this project that I want to return to in the conclusion. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that we developed three different versions or three different uh, hypotheses about how war may shape the imagination of sovereignty. But because of our no novelty of our research question, these hypotheses are not um, directly drawn on a single canon of literature. That is, what we do instead is we take inspiration from three disparate uh, literatures to form conjectures, or formulate conjectures about the role of war. And so our first conjecture begins with this idea or this observation that war, or more properly, 
defeat on the battlefield can settle the institutional question about the proper location and structure of sovereign authority. One side wins, one side loses, and the victors get to impose their institutions of, of sovereignty on the vanquished. And so given this reality, the losing side may then simply give up, right? Reconcile itself to, to the reality on the ground. And really this idea comes from the logic of adaptive preferences, right? In which people tend to adjust their aspirations to their possibilities in uh, life. And so we expect that when defeat makes some institutional arrangements impossible, ideological abandonment will follow. The second conjecture draws not on the literature on preferences, but really comes much more from the traditional state building literature and takes inspiration from Charles Tilley's observation that wars are really expensive in terms of blood and treasure and that states have to rely on their populations to draw these resources in order to fight and sacrifice in times of war. But in doing so, as leaders are making these appeals for their citizens to uh, fight and sacrifice in wartime, they have to justify why these wars are being fought, right? They have to explain why these wars are fought. They have to explain the issues under dispute and justify why sacrifice is needed. And they often make these justifications in terms of ideological appeals, right? These can be appeals toward democracy or national identity, patriotic appeals, religious appeals, but often they can apply to uh, sovereign principles like the right to national self-determination. These appeals can even take on normative valence, right? So as each, each side is going to position its position as the one that is morally right and correct. And so we expect that under this mechanism, which we call the valence mechanism, um, war is going to strengthen ideological commitment on both sides of the conflict. All right. The third conjecture um, builds on a different strand of literature, which really sees the disruption of war as an opportunity or a critical juncture for institutional or ideational change. Wars are, of course, highly visible, disruptive, traumatic events, right? We all know this. And for ordinary people, the uncertainty and shock uh, of crisis, particularly these kinds of crisis, really disrupts the status quo. And it opens them up to uh, convert to conversion, to new ideas, and to new possibilities. And so knowing that these kind of moments are rare and often fleeting, ideological entrepreneurs, by which we mean the individuals who are most committed to promoting ideological change, will feel newly empowered, newly energized, and galvanized into action to seize the moment. And so here under this mechanism, which we're going to call the entrepreneurial mechanism, um, we expect increased ideological commitment, but really only among these uh, ideological entrepreneurs. So again, I call this the uh, entrepreneurial hypothesis, but you can really think of it as sort of the carpe diem or YOLO hypothesis. <laughs> so what we do is that we're going to examine um, these three hypotheses uh, in the context of 19th century America. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we really like this case because it features two clear competing ideas about how sovereign authority should be uh, arranged, and that these ideas were really intentioned from the very moment of the U.S. founding, right? So as that is at the moment that we uh, establish our independence and set up our institutions, there was disagreement about whether we would be a federal, a truly federal entity or a truly national entity. Um, and to quote one historian, the United States was neither wholly federal nor wholly national at its founding. 
Now, these debates about final sovereign authority and where it should be located in the states or in the federal government or the national government arose periodically through the first several decades of our nation's existence. And as we all know, North-South divisions over slavery really intensify this debate about sovereignty. In particular, the Southern slaveholding states justified their position on slavery and its eventual secession from the Union by arguing that the Union was a compact of equal sovereign states. Right, so they had this notion of um, a delegated kind of sovereignty. So sovereignty originates with the U.S. states. The states delegate that sovereignty to the national government. Um, and because the union only exists as an agreement that comes about from this delegated sovereignty, that authority can be with, uh, withdrawn at any time. In contrast, the Northern states had a much more organic and national conception of sovereignty. And so whereas the South thought of sovereignty as this composite thing, the North thought of the uh, national government as possessing a consolidated sovereignty, that there is no sovereignty that preexisted the union and the states only had, uh, had to share authority because it comes from the national government. And these ideas are particularly pronounced among members of the Northern wing of the Republican party, as well as their Whig predecessors. Now the civil war did settle these questions in an institutional sense, right? The South seceded, it ends up defeated, the North fought back. Um, but the, war, the question that we're really exploring in this particular case is whether the war actually promoted that ideation bullshit. And so now that you have the historical background, I want to take those three different hypotheses I introduced and develop very case-specific hypotheses. And they're summarized here in this table. So what you can see is that the different hypotheses vary not only in terms of the mechanism, but in the timing of when we should expect to observe the effects, either post-war or at the outbreak of war, um, or and they also differ in terms of where we should expect to see the effects and the direction of the effects. Right, so the abandonment hypothesis is the one that emphasizes defeat on the battlefield. So we should really see a change among the South, right, the losers, as they move away from this sort of states' rights composite ideal of sovereignty um, and embrace a national sovereignty. For the valence mechanism, um, we develop both a strong version and a weak version of that mechanism. The reason we have to do this is because there's considerable disagreement among historians about what the South was really fighting about. I would say that, so I'm not a historian, but in my reading of the history, there is a wing of historians who really see the war, uh, the Civil War as a fight about slavery. So primarily about slavery in the South and only secondarily about states' rights. There is a, a different set of historians who emphasize um, the duality of these two ide uh, competing ideas more equally. Right? And so rather than take a stand on which set of historians is correct, we develop two different versions. In um, both versions, we should expect the North, uh, we should, if the valence mechanism is at work, we should expect increased ideological commitment among uh, the North. But we also develop a, a version um, that acknowledges the possibility that the South really wasn't initially fighting, at least initially fighting for states' rights. And so the strongest version of this famous hypothesis would also include uh, ideological hardening among the South. Right? So we're going to test both the strong version and the weak version, which allows us to not take a position on whether which set of historians is correct. 
The final version is the entrepreneurial hypothesis. We expect to observe changes in the idea, uh, imagination of sovereignty at the outbreak of war. Um, but instead of taking on sort of a sectional or regional uh, comparison, here we're going to focus on the subset of actors who are the ideological entrepreneurs, again, the Northern Republicans. Now, um, although the historical setting of the United States gives us uh, about 100 years to observe the ideational shift, potential ideational shift, as I mentioned, one of the problems that we had to surmount was the lack of data on how people are thinking about sovereignty. Right. So because there's no public opinion data, we had to come up with another method. And so what we do is that we study changes in um, the civic language and in American English as a window into imagined sovereignty. And the basic idea here is that how people speak can tell us something about what they think. And specifically, as I mentioned, our measure is going to exploit a grammatical shift. It's a quirk of American English in which the uh, phrase United States stopped being plural and started being singular. And we're gonna take the shift as indicative of imagined sovereignty, where the plural, the United States are, um, corresponds to this idea of a composite, multiple equal sovereignties embedded in the states, and where the singular corresponds to the idea that there is a single sovereignty embedded in the national government. Now, we are, of course, not the very first scholars to document this shift. This is well known among both historians and uh, literary scholars, as well as specialists in American history. Um, but these scholars have generally agreed that this grammatical shift does carry historical meaning. And then they have associated it with changes in how people think about the United States, whether it is singular or multiple, whether it is a union or a nation. Um, so we're gonna rely a bit on uh, appeals to authority here. But we also know that uh, observers in the 19th century themselves linked grammar to ideas about sovereignty, right? And in the paper, um, we have several uh, pieces of primary source evidence that uh, support this point. And one of them I actually want to read you in full. Um, one of these quotes comes to us from the Washington Post, which is writing about a couple of decades after the Civil War. And it was trying to justify to its readers why it had changed uh, to use the singular version of the United States. And so um, the quote, what they write is that before the first bull run, we generally said the United States are, are a confederacy, for instance. But after Appomattox, we learned to say the United States is, is a nation, for instance. The war settled permanently the question of grammar and all that implies because behind the sentiment was the syntax. Whatever we may have thought once, however we may have felt once, it is now seen for us to be, it is now seen to be better for us to all say the United States is, is a nation. And there are several quotes similar um, like this in the historical record. Um, so, so we do think that uh, observers living at the time thought of the United States in these kind of terms, that how you chose to speak really reflects what you think. And perhaps most importantly, just to give us some extra convincing on the conceptual validity of our measure, we went to see how individuals spoke about the Confederacy, right? The Confederacy founded on this idea of multiple equal sovereignties among the constituent parts. And importantly, in the primary source materials, the Confederacy is always treated as a plural noun. And so this grammatical shift is not some bizarre quirk of American English more generally in talking about um, federal type units. It is specific to the United States as a term. Okay. 
And I could talk more about this if you're interested. You are listening to an episode of Wednesdays at SSP featuring Dr. Melissa Lee. Now, we are tracing, we trace this grammatical shift in two types of textual sources. The first comes from uh, two newspaper data sets. Both are proprietary digitized newspapers, uh, corpuses. They cover the entire 19th century from 1800 to 1899. What we like about these sources is that they contain political and non-political content from, I, I don't wanna say non-elite, but I will definitely say less elite writers. Right, so we think this gets us something closer to tr- a truly popular imagination of sovereignty. Um, and it does cover this entire period in which the grammatical shift is underway. What we can do here is use newspapers to pinpoint grammatical shift, the grammatical usage of, this, of the singular versus plural to specific locations based on the newspaper's headquarters cities. To do that, we have to assume that the the content in those newspapers is locally generated. That assumption is violated for most news articles, or many news articles, I should say, because newspapers had a practice of reprinting article content from other locations. And so to get around that, we're going to focus only on material that is likely to actually be locally generated, which are letters to the editor, as well as editorials. The second textual source uh, comes to us from congressional speech. And so when members of Congress during this period weren't beating each other up on on the floor of Congress, they were giving speeches and debating various issues. The congressional speech corpus comes from two two journals of Congress, the Congressional Globe and the Congressional Record, um, which contain all debates from Congress. And the speech data let us link grammatical usage in the, in the plural or the singular to specific individuals, specific members of Congress. That's going to let us pull in party ID information, which is really key for testing that entrepreneurial hypothesis. Now, an important assumption of this set of uh, sources is that the speech that's printed in the congressional journals is verbatim speech, right? It is the speech of those speakers. This assumption is valid from about 1851 onward um, for a number of technological and policy-based reasons, which I can explain in Q&A if you're interested. Um, But what it really means is that we're only observing speech from basically the latter half of the century. So what we get is a trade-off. We um, lose temporal breadth, but we get analytical depth, right, by being able to look at these individuals. Now, to identify the singular or plural, we follow scholarship in the humanities, and particularly the digital humanities, in using subject-verb agreement, right? So uh, going all the way back to grade school, um, if the subject of a sentence is plural, then uh, it has to take a plural verb, and if it's singular, it has to take a singular verb. And so we specifically look for three very common verb pairs, is, are, has, have, and was, were. But doing this search is not actually very straightforward. You can't just like go into a database and like type in United States are, United States is. And the reason is that we face two challenges. The first is that the United States has to occupy the subject position of the sentence. So I call, uh, this is called the grammatical subject. Um, it can't be the object of a sentence and it can't be some part of a, like a longer name such as president of the United States. In addition, um, because of the age of these documents, the OCR is in really bad shape, like really bad shape. Um, these examples, this example is actually a pretty good case of bad OCR. Um, and so what they show you are two, sorry, what this one shows you is an object mention. The commissioners who represented the United States are now dead. 
right? So that's an object mention, we can't use that. This one, it's meant to say, now the United States has not owned any land in that part of the state of Tennessee. And again, that's, that's like pretty good. So um, the way we get around this, and credit to my co-author Tillman for really developing the method for this. He had a really low-tech automated solution that I can tell you about, which basically developed a series of rules to identify likely subject mentions as opposed to object mentions, throwing out very common problems like compound nouns, Mexico and the United States, for example. Um, and then the poor guy read every single remaining mention to verify that we had no false positives. So lots of work. Um, in follow-on work, we're developing a much more sophisticated natural language processing approach. OCR is still a problem. Um, but so I'm very confident that what we have here are actual grammatical subject mentions, if it, even if it is not the whole universe. All right. So because two of the three of our hypotheses involve sectional effects, comparison between North and South, we're going to restrict attention to newspapers headquartered in cities, sorry, US states and territories that eventually fought in the US Civil War. So that's blue and red states, right? Blue being the Union states, red being the states that eventually fought in the Civil War. We exclude five states, the ones shown in, in hash shading, because they are the what's called the border states. They had the institution of slavery, but for whatever reason, usually quite specific to that state, did not join uh, the Confederacy. And then for reasons of consistency, we're going to limit the speech data to members of Congress who represent um, those states and territories. So let me finally show you some data. So what this plot shows you is um, singular mentions, so grammatical subject mentions, from the newspaper corpus spanning the whole 19th century. Um, it's separated out by north and south. The golden bar shows you the years of the U.S. Civil War. And the size of these bubbles give you a sense of how many mentions we observe in each year. And if you're a little surprised about the magnitude, right, the sort of the, the rarity of these mentions, this is because the grammatical subject is actually not particularly common in this time period. It was not common to say it's not common to say the United States went to war. Like now we think of that as very common. At the time, it was not, it, it was less common than it is now. Um, and that's actually something I'm picking up on in follow-on work. Uh, but what I want you to take away from this plot is that both the North and the South start with relatively low singular usage at the beginning of the century. And by the end of the century, we do see massive increase in for both, both sections. But What's going on between is super interesting, right? So what we see, what, it, what we appear to see in the North is an acceleration in the adoption of the grammatical singular, starting from around the time of the war. And for the South, it doesn't appear, maybe if we squint, it looks like an intercept shift, but it doesn't really look statistically significant. Right? So basically what I see is no change in the trend in the South. Right. And so already this is suggesting that perhaps there's no evidence for the abandonment hypothesis. So what we're going to do is we're going to take that data to statistical analysis, testing the abandonment hypothesis together with the valence hypothesis in a single model. And what we do in that model is we're simply going to shift the year, sort of the breakpoint, based because the timing of these two hypotheses differ. Right. So in the first one, we're going to have the breakpoint at the end of the war. 
Second, we will have the breakpoint at the beginning of the war. The outcome of interest is change in the use of the grammatical singular. So this can be a change in levels in intercept shift, or it can be a change in the rate adoption, which would be a slope shift. Okay. We specify a model of section, so like north times a dummy for the period. So when they abandon my hypothesis, the period is set at eight, post-1865, as well as year as a linear, uh, entered as a uh, linear term. The unit of analysis is the subject mentioned, and we're going to estimate this with linear probability with errors clustered at headquarter city, although it doesn't, it turns out the error clustering doesn't matter. We get about 5,000 mentions from a little under uh, 5,000 unique documents. Of course, one of the complications of doing this kind of analysis is that we know there are a number of potential confounding factors that are um, related to section as well as the likely usage of the grammatical singular. And so what we do is we draw inspiration from a lot of the comparative and American political development literature to come up with a set of confounding factors. And the most important confounding factors have to do with economic and political modernization, right? So scholars have long argued that um, uh, modernization breaks local parochial ties and reorients individuals toward a larger national unit. In the American context, uh, modernization uh, often maps onto sectional differences related to local political economy and also uh, were deeply bound up in the most contentious political issues of the day, which were the national tariff policy, as well as the role of the federal government in promoting what's called internal improvements, uh, which really is uh, physical infrastructure to connect the United States together. Now, these, these, these um, issues were also, uh, they also engaged questions about the proper authority and sovereignty of the national government to override the individual state positions on, uh, on these issues, right? They also pitted the nationally oriented Whigs and the Republican uh, uh, successors against the Democrats. And so to capture these confounding factors in this first analysis, we code several proxies for modernization at the county level. So these would be county um, characteristics that are associated with the grammatical subject mention. Think of it this way. So if, um, if we have a mention from the Los Angeles Times, we're going to look at the county characteristics of Los Angeles County at the year in which that mention occurs. These county characteristics include the degree of urbanization, whether the county contains a river, a steamboat navigable river, whether it contains a canal. These are two really important types of internal improvements at the time, as well as a measure of terrain ruggedness, which captures the accessibility of the region. Um, and then the density of post offices. Why post offices? The post office is actually the um, entity of government that Americans are most likely to encounter in their everyday lives. So there's not much of a tax apparatus at this time. Most Americans aren't encountering the military what they do see is the post office. Okay, so we're gonna use that as a proxy for state presence um, and sort of exposure to sort of more modern uh, political conditions. Okay, so let me show you the results. So ordinarily what I would do is I would show you a visual depiction, but in the interest of transparency and because there are a lot of comparisons that we're making, um, I thought a table would be clearer. Okay, what these, this table shows you is not the raw regression output. It actually shows you the linear combinations or the quantities 
of interest. And I want to focus your attention really on the second and the fourth lines of the table. That's it's always going to be the second and the fourth lines. These correspond to changes in levels, so the intercept shift, and the change in the rate of adoption or the slope shift. Okay. Now recall that the abandonment hypothesis focuses on the south. That's why we're just showing you the, the, the southern uh, results now. Um, and that it holds that the South should increase singular usage after defeat. That is not what we're seeing here, right? There's no statistically significant evidence for that. And it really confirms what you saw in that plot that I showed you before. Um, so again, I think this really cast doubt on the abandonment hypothesis. Now let me show you the results for the valence hypothesis. Same structure, sort of that triple interaction, but this time setting the time break at the beginning of the war. And here, I think we have some mixed evidence. Right? So the strong version predicts we should see ideological hardening on both sides. The weak version makes predictions only for the North. And you want to focus on two and four, two and four. Right? So not seeing, again, uh, much evidence for the South, no evidence of any change. But in the North, right, we're seeing what looked like, again, confirming what our eyes saw in the plot, that there's an acceleration in the usage of the singular in the North. So where does that leave us so far? What we, what we confidently can rule out is the abandonment hypothesis. But we can't rule out the valence hypothesis just yet because our evidence from the previous analysis, which is conducted only, uh, which doesn't distinguish between within section heterogeneity, um, that evidence could be consistent with the entrepreneurial hypothesis. And so to test that, we have to move to the congressional speech data. To distinguish between the weak version of the uh, valence hypothesis and the entrepreneurial hypothesis, we only look at within-north variation. So both make predictions about patterns within the north. The weak version of the valence hypothesis would suggest that we wouldn't see heterogeneity by political party, because right? this is a sectional effect, ideological hardening on one side. The entrepreneurial hypothesis does make a prediction about within section heterogeneity. Again, it should only be the, the Northern Republicans, the ones who are really pushing this idea of a strong, authoritative national government that can override the interests of the states. Um, those included the radical Republicans, two of the most famous of which are depicted on the slide. But the radical Republicans weren't the only ones pushing this idea, right? It really was the Republican Party more, uh, more generally. And so if the entrepreneurial mechanism is in play, we should see greater wartime-induced shifts in the grammatical singular, sort of increases in the grammatical singular for the Republicans than their Democratic opponents in the North. So move to the speech data. Again, the interests, the outcomes of interest are changes in levels and rates of adoption, a triple interaction again, but this time between period, year, and a dummy for whether the speaker is a Republican or a Whig. Um, and uh, because of the complex structure of the data, we have to uh, specify a hierarchical linear, uh, linear probability model, right? Because mentions are nested within speakers who can appear in more than one Congress. So we're gonna include some cross-nested random effects. We have fewer mentions, not surprising because this is a uh, half century less of data. Our main inferential challenge that we face is that there is um, significant entry and exit of speakers from our data set. And entry and exit can occur because of the normal process of congressional turnover, but also because a speaker simply does not provide a mention 
in which the United States appears in that grammatical subject position, right? And so you might worry that uh, these speakers cannot be pulled together. And so to get around that, um, what we're going to do is we're going to control for the life experiences of these speakers because the life experiences, their social milieu might be able might structure whether or not um, they decide to use the grammatical singular. These are broken down into two types of control variables. Birthplace characteristics, which are coded at the county of birth, at the time of birth for each speaker. Same set of controls as in the newspaper data set, as well as a set of uh, indicators for a speaker's biographical experiences whether he was college educated, whether he served in the US military, not the Confederate military, uh, and the year of birth, okay? So the structure of the table should be familiar. So again, two and four, I'm gonna go right to the punchline. The key to disentangling these two hypotheses from each other is that within section heterogeneity, heterogeneity and that's what we see, right? For Whigs and Republicans, there's a one-time discontinuous jump in singular usage, it's about almost 25% um, at the outbreak of war. But there's no such change for the Northern Democrats, right? So this is consistent with the entrepreneurial hypothesis, not the valence hypothesis. Now, skeptics might say, well, you've only got 10 years of data before the outbreak of war. So can we really be confident about that? Um, to complete the empirical picture, we're going to go back to these super data just to make sure that this effect that we're seeing uh, exists there as well. There are some trade-offs here, right? We don't get party ID anymore. But what we can observe is whether a county voted for or was more influenced by Republicans than by Northern Democrats. So what we do is we look at how the counties voted in an important uh, election, the 1864 election, which was contested between Abraham Lincoln, the Republican incumbent, and his Democratic challenger, George McClellan. And basically the idea here is that the counties that went for Lincoln should show, these are the counties that are the followers of the Republicans, right? And so we should see greater adoption of the grammatical sing singular, sort of more rapid adoption in those places compared to the Northern Democrat counties that went for McClellan. So again, triple interaction, this time we're swapping out uh, indicator and having a new dummy for whether the county went for Lincoln in that 1864 election. Um, the unit of analysis is the same. We go back to linear probability, fewer observations because we've thrown out all of the South. Right? South can't vote because they're not in the union. Um, so punch, let's go right to the punchline again. What we can see is that there is changes in the slope for both Lincoln and McClellan counties. But notice that the change is about twice as large for the Lincoln counties as opposed to the Democratic counties. And so we do see this as evidence consistent with the entrepreneurial hypothesis when taken together in the totality of everything else that we have done in this paper. So what have we learned? So we found that war shifts imagined sovereignty, but for the North only, and more precisely, really for these ideological entrepreneurs, the places that are most, the individuals that are most committed to the national sovereignty idea and the places that follow these individuals. This is a really important finding, we think, because it forces scholars to recenter the study of sovereign authority around its ideational foundations, right? Again, to go back to what I said in the beginning, it, sovereign authority requires much more than institutionalization for the effective exercise of power. And, ins and institutions have received 
a lot of attention at the expense of these more ideational components. Our study is pointing to this mismatch between institutions and idea, uh, the ideational foundations. Because sovereignty fundamentally recognizes arrests on the recognition from the governed, um, our results imply that victory on the battlefield doesn't ne necessarily or automatically get you that recognition. So another important finding of our paper is that these ideological entrepreneurs really play an important role in mediating that shift, right? This suggests that scholars who want to understand the transformative effects of war on aspects of statehood have to be attentive of the question of for whom are these changes occurring, right? And not make, uh, uh, not draw conclusions about sort of entities as a whole. And really by focusing on these ideological entrepreneurs, our paper show, shows that scholars have to go beyond the dichotomy between the victors and the vanquished, right? And to recognize that even the victors may not be monoliths. And so for this reason, we think our paper has sober implications for post-war governance and national solidarity after the aftermath of, of crisis, right? When the vanquished don't recognize the authority of the victors or accept their vision, it, the victors are going to struggle to govern the vanquished, right? This is a lesson that's all too familiar to students of American history. The Southern backlash against reconstruction left the transformative revolutionary project of the North really incomplete. And once the, Southerner, the South was restored to the Union, Southern Democrats overwhelmingly sent uh, large numbers of former unrepentant former Confederates to the US Congress. And so to the extent that the Civil War did render the many into the one, this is true, at least in the short term, only in an institutional sense. And it would take several more decades for the United States to truly become one in the popular imagination. So thanks very much. I look forward to your comments. You are listening to an episode of Wednesdays at SSP featuring Dr. Melissa Lee. She will now take questions from the audience. Graduate student Nick Ackert. Hi, Melissa. I'm Nick Ackert. I'm a third-year PhD student with the program. I'm also a huge fan of your work on Southeast Asia, and I also study weak states in that region. Um, so I had a question. I, so I, I think, uh, and it's a big-picture question, I find the evidence for the third hypothesis very persuasive, given the extent of the data that you've collected. But what I can't get out of my mind is your previous work, which would tell me that actually, in, in for the cases of weak states, things like abandonment and valence, to me, would be much more plausible explanations for who gets to... Uh, uh, hold a monopoly on violence in a state. And I'm thinking of the case like Myanmar, right, which we call Myanmar because that's what the junta wants it called rather than Burma. And so if the core research question is how do strong states become strong, what I'm wondering is, is there already a cutoff where these states have strong enough institutions that policy entrepreneurs can already promote these these ideas. And could that explain why we're not seeing this same kind of uh, hypothesis active in the more developing world? And so if that's the case, does that tell us that there's some kind of a, a cutoff or an important scope condition for the theory you're proposing? Thank you. Thanks for the question. Yeah. Um, I was actually puzzling over this uh, last night as I was reviewing the paper. I think about, you know, history is written by the victor. And mm -hmm. Myanmar is an excellent example of that. And yes, the narrative about what the South faced, right, this emergence of an idea of a lost cause, right? About the Southern struggle with noble and all, all of these weird ideas, like, ideas that were around. I think doesn't quite fit with this notion of victor's justice. 
My mistake was actually not to go to this uh, notion of a state strength cutoff, but to think about a particular uh, regime context. Right? So we're democratic, that is electorally democratic from our founding. And I'm one, I, I would sort of wonder if, if the, the fact that we started as a democracy and so we start with this idea that there, that there has to be voice and representation, even among the South, even after what they did uh, by uh, seeing from the United States, I think allowed for this other narrative to emerge that would not be possible, say, in a more authoritarian context like you know. So I don't have strong, I don't have strong uh, priors that there could be a state strength cutoff. Um, and so I would, if I if you me down today, I would say it's something I might have to do for sure. Graduate student Suzanne Freeman. Hi, thanks so much. And thank you for a really interesting talk. My question is sort of about the implications of what you found in in the U.S. case and sort of generalizing to other civil wars. And I'm curious, and you sort of mentioned Reconstruction and some of the lack of success of Reconstruction at the end of your talk. Um, and I'm curious what implications you think that this finding about entrepreneurs might have sort of for post-war settlements and their success and reintegrating losers into new states and sort of for civil war recurrence based on that. Thank you so much. Um, we think that in terms of, of generalizing to other wars, we do think we have to be wars in which there's some kind of contestation over ideas, right? So we're specifically studying the case of sovereignty because of the nature of my own research interests. Um, but we do think that we, there are parallels to be drawn in to, to wars fought over other ideas regime type, for example, or struggles for national groups. Um, in terms of post-war settlements, I do think that, that our work suggests there has to be a distinction drawn between how you deal with the equivalent of an ideological versus sort of what you might think much more the rank and file or the foot soldiers, right? Um, and that it will be much harder, I think, to incorporate the most ideologically as opposed to the right and I don't want to go any further and say there's like what policy implications that might have, but I do think that, that this points to the very different treatment of those two groups. Maybe that's elites versus masses, but I do think it's something about the most committed versus sort of uh, right and Uh, hey, um, thanks for presenting this. I always love something texty um, and great to see you again. Um, uh, a couple of comments to maybe uh, think about things you Professor might do in the Rich paper Nielsen. and then a question kind of more in the spirit like spirit of the, the SSP seminar of like uh, a little, little bigger picture. But the comments are, I think this could really benefit from like, uh, like, case studies of author fixed effects where like author cascades of authors decide to change like like you can show the date on which they stop using the plural and start using the singular and trace that out for a few people and maybe even like if you could show me like how the influence happens all of a sudden the entrepreneurial story just becomes like rock solid um also i was just curious like what other linguistic shifts would accompany this so i could imagine taking texts where you see the shift 
and then doing something like topic models or something else on them to pick out other shifts that are correlated with this shift because I imagine that there are other other linguistic either topical or kind of parts of speech uh, in the uh, changes that, that could co-occur and that could be really interesting as well. Um, so the the more substantive question is uh, how much how much can you what, what's your level of confidence that this is about war or which part of the war is this about? Um, so the, the shift doesn't happen super quickly. Um, and I'm wondering what the, what the entrepreneurs, if I go with your story, what exactly are they responding to? Are they responding to the fact that secession happens and thus that requires a need to like create an ideology where the United States is singular? Is it because the war is concluded and won in a certain way or is it because it's concluded and then reunification is what happens and so there's a need to try to there's, there's this political battle um uh you know that reminded me of like like linguistic political battles that happen now about like you know opposing donald trump or opposing joe biden right there's like all sorts of fun language games happening uh, as we speak on on uh, you know, trying to signal different political ideologies through uh, phrases and phrases around um, uh, loaded things. Which which part do you think is most operative there? Um, or if you're not sure, like, is there something you could do that that would uh, hone in on on like what exactly in the war is doing the work here? Because the treatment is bundled, and the effects take a while to kick in. Um, so we'd love to do something that looks at variation within authors. There's so that's only possible in the speech data because we have no author information for this. Um, for the speech data, we do have some congressmen that we can observe over long periods of time, and um, it, it does not. I'd say for the modal congressperson, it's not an automatic immediate switch. It's not the case that for one year he's using the singular, uh, the plural, and then he suddenly stops. That's for the modal Congress, though. Um, I think that's less, that's not true for the, the most radical of the Republicans, that they do stop pretty quickly um, using the plural if they used it at all before. Um, sorry. Even the radicals were using it, the plural before. Um, but there's not a lot of data here using these super high time. So we can actually like, dig in and look at documents. We have not done that. I mean, like, we need to get to do much more qualitative approach, and we have not done that yet. Um, we're thinking about doing it. Uh, the question about other linguistic shifts is great. So historians have observed that um, we used to say union. We no longer say, or, or we, it became much more common after the Civil War to say nation. We wanted to do that in our text analysis, but we couldn't quite the analog of the is-are. The nice thing about the is-are is that whenever the United States is in a grammatical subject position, you have to choose a verb, right? But you don't have to say union, you don't have to say nation. And we, we couldn't, I have to say, like, you couldn't come up with the right way to operationalize that without it turning it into some kind of salience measure. Right, so a salience measure means something kind of like what Google engrams would capture, like Google's daily usage. Um, and so we stepped aside from that for now. We did do a very low-tech um, office modeling. It's like embarrassing with low tech for anyone who actually does like natural language processing properly. Um, 
Poor Tillman and uh, a set of RAs again went through a lot of these speeches to try to cover topics and we're like, and the reason we did that is because OCR is trash. And then we were like, oh, this we have to do this in a more sophisticated way. We have to solve the OCR problem first, so we set it aside. I will say that there is that our initial uh, array into the very low-tech top modeling approach shook out the way you would expect. But again, given the fact that we were just sort of like thinking and coding, we didn't want to hang our hats along on that. So we set that aside for the follow-up paper. As for the substantive question, you, I do think it's not four. I think it is mostly about the outbreak of war, but I, I also want to acknowledge that for some of these ideological entrepreneurs, victory also provided an opportunity. So there was a lot of shock and trauma that the South decided to seek organizations, right? But that's, it's, it was also the case that these individuals already adhered to an ideal of the United States in which the national government had robust power over by the interests of the states. Now, this wasn't like some high-minded ideal, right? This really reflected their local political economy interests based on manufacturing in the North, right? To be able to support their industry, they needed a strong national government that was going to push aside the interests of the South that really resisted um, policies that favored Northern manufacturing interests. So the interests do predate the war, but the war provides an opportunity, right, that, that accompanies the shock of the South. The seeding said, well, the South has succeeded, like, now we have this chance to really do some fighting for this. We might as well fight really, really hard. And so the paper, which I don't have in front of me, has a couple of quotes, I think, that really capture this idea that there is a moment of, of opportunity. And when they, and this, this moment of opportunity, this feeling of opportunity was reinforced at the time of victory. So we that. So now we're going to reconstruct that. Right? So it's, I want to say, it's yes to all of your questions, but it's yes, especially the first part, first part of the outbreak report. I see your questions. I'll come back to you shortly. Um, next, over to Sam later. Sam? Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for the talk. This was really interesting. I should invest in a notebook, so I'm not carrying a laptop up here. But um, I have a few questions about sort of the, the data you showed. And I, I thought there were a few interesting things about it. One, um, it looks like the proportion of U.S. singular is close to zero pre-war. Uh, is that like a finding in and of itself, something you want to explore or have thoughts about? It also... I thought it was interesting that prior to the war, the South is also increasingly accepting that the, the U.S. has a singular. What do you think is going on there? Why is the side that is preparing for secession essentially becoming more close to accepting the U.S. as a singular uh, nation? And then lastly, you talked about at the end how Reconstruction, uh, you know, ends up being rejected by the South. But at the end of the period you look at, it appears that so the newspapers are overwhelmingly accepting the U.S. as a singular nation. Why do you think there is a disconnect? Is that something where temporally you might see a shift later if you were to extend out the dates? Um, and thank you again for the talk. Thanks. So the proportion of... So we are not the first scholars to notice that the singular was hardly used at the start of the 19th century. Um, there's a great study by um, some literary scholars who look at newspapers, um, a different set of newspapers than what we look at without drawing the sectional distinctions, and they have the same finding. Um, 
this debate about is and are has actually been played out. It has analogs in history and in um, the digital humanities about sort of whether the Civil War was this transformative moment. It ends up the answer is both. Um, the historians would say, you know, the Civil War eradicated the, uh, the plural. The literary scholars say this is a much more slow uh, process of transformation. It's both because the Civil War actually does accelerate the usage of singular for the North. Um, so we're not the first to observe this. Um, it's also been observed in different types of texts. So there's been a study of all Supreme Court opinions since the founding um, that also traces the slow uh, increase in the singular from basically zero. Um, and so that's part of the reason why we don't make too much uh, about that and we focus much more on the sectional differences and the uh, within section heterogeneity. We also think within sectional heterogeneity is why we see that increase in the South, right? The South, just as the North, was not a monolith. And so even within the South, there was a lot of contestation about slavery, slave interests, the role of states' rights, right? Even on the eve of secession, there was debate among Southerners about whether um, the South, their states should secede. And we think that that slow upward trend is probably reflecting that within section heterogeneity. Uh, there was a version of the plot that I, sh like in early versions of this, this talk, I used to show smooth mentions, not bubble plots, but just like smooth, I think it's like Lois or something, um, of singular usage by North and South. And what we kind of see there is that the South starts to taper off. Um, we weren't really sure if that was a function of the smoothing algorithms because we tried different ones and we could still see that tapering. But we think that we need more data like past 1900 to be able to be sure that there is an actual tapering. Um, I don't think I have it in backup slides to show. No, I don't. So, um, and unfortunately I inquired with the proprietary uh, database people and they're like, no, we don't have it past 1900. So I'm gonna have to go look some us to, to really figure out what's going on. I think, I think what it suggests though is that it's increasing, there's a flattening of the curve and then it goes back up like after some amount of time. <laughs> so my comments largely um, uh, follow on or are consistent with Rich's. Uh -huh. um, so one question Professor is, Kelly what Greenhill is what of rhetoric does Lincoln use when he's running for election? Are there, are, are, there, um, are there shifts that appear, say, in the campaign documents in, eight, in 1864 that might explain some shift? <laughs> Um, and hints uh, that in terms of the case studies, I'm not sure, I may have missed it, but I can't tell if what you're uh, interpreting as ideological hardening is ideological hardening versus entrepreneurs who are already in favor of this idea using the, what happened with the war as an opportunity. So it's, that it could simply be this is instrumental and we were handed an opportunity to do what we wanted to do anyway. So this, I think the case studies could help um, disentangle how much is really a fundamental shift in ideation <laughs> um, versus, hey, if, you know, someone hands us an opportunity, we're going to run with it. Right. Finally, your, your quote, your quote is from the Washington Post, right? Yeah. So the Washington Post wasn't 
didn't come into to being until 1877. So I was intrigued by after Appomattox, we. So who is the we? Is this the you know the, the sovereign we? So who are the we? Who is the we? And why did they decide after Appomattox, which is of course not the start of the war, but close to the end? So it's a very intriguing quote. I'm not sure it quite fits, or there's not sure it quite fits your argument, or there's a much more um, complicated story that maybe very much does fit your argument, but I found the quote both very interesting, but also kind of confusing. Okay. So on the quote, I've always thought of the we as like we Americans, as opposed to we like the editorial board of the Washington Post. But it sounded, as, as described here, it sounded as if you were saying we, the editorial board, decided to do this after... So again, they that, that I misunderstood. It might, I might have been the context of the KPI existing. Yeah, the time when they were the statement. I was having a hard time parsing. Totally got it. Yeah. Um, what I can tell you is that the editorial was written because, like, specifically this is the reason why they write the editorial. And it's still very much contested concept. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right, which I think was reflected in the data, too, the fact that there is still quite a bit of um, plural usage. Um, we also see this in newspapers um, and letters written to newspapers elsewhere, right, where people are like, only these confederates who were traitors are using these plural these days, right? So there, it is freighted with meaning. Um, but I take your point that perhaps the Washington uh, Post quote is not the best one to, to present uh, on this evidence. It was much I'm trying to wrap my head around what this quote is supposed to be talking Yeah, yeah, uh, point taken. Um, on the question of what rhetoric does Lincoln use, <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say that I don't know about his R, but I can tell you that historians have traced his usage of union and nation, and that he does stop using union and word, significantly decreases his for union after victory. Right, so his, sorry, I, after the war breaks out, so, um, I think McPherson writes about this explicitly in the conclusion of one of his Civil War volumes, um, but other historians have noticed this as well, that Lincoln will make a, actually a, a deliberate rapid switch. Um, I have not actually looked at his R, so I probably should. <laughs> yeah, and then um, I take your point about ideological hardening and entrepreneurial, what you are describing is what we think of as the difference between those two hypotheses, right? That, that this sort of opportunistic uh, idea is what corresponds with the entrepreneurs, that they're already committed, um, and that there's an opportunity that comes with the vulnerable. And the difference for us is that for the, the valence hypothesis, it should apply to everyone, right? As sort of ordinary individuals, or like non-elites, I should at least say, right? That, ordinary individuals who may not sort of be attuned to national politics, right, are suddenly forced to grapple with uh, politics in a way they weren't before, right? And we, there's analogs to this even today, right, in the studies of American foreign uh, public opinion. Maria, could I have two fingers? Uh, two fingers, yeah. yeah. Just a quick follow-up on that. I was wondering sort of the dichotomy between imagined sovereignty as a popular notion versus finding the actual family you're looking at among Congress people who are Japanese and not sort of showing us what they imagine sounding to the popular sentiments. Yeah, so there's a couple of caveats there which I should mention, right? So we're not capturing speech in women. We're not capturing speech 
uh, speech of black men, right? Or black women for that matter, or really any other uh, uh, minorities. I, we probably do have a couple of newspapers that are, um, that are circulated for what are then minority populations or immigrant populations, but I should be very careful that this is not popular in the sense of representative of American society, right? Uh, there are no women in Congress in this period, um, so right, so we're not really capturing that. We do think that the newspapers get us closer to the notion of popular speech. That's why we lead. It's part of the reason why we lead with it. Um, I think that's also that also explains the timing of the effects, right? So if you notice, as I was going through those tables really quickly, sometimes we saw levels changes, and sometimes it was uh, changes in the rate of adoption. The level jump happened among the elites. And the change, the, the slope shift, um, that appeared in the newspaper. And I actually think that that is evidence of the elites leading, right? The ones who are most committed are gonna change right away. And then it sort of trickles down into sort of more popular society, or at least the non-elite segment of society. So yes, we use the word popular and I have not, I think, adequately caveated what we mean by that. So thanks for pointing it out. Uh, back to the Zoom, uh, over to Boya Turner. Sorry, can you say my name? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Melissa. This is a fascinating project. Uh, and so I have uh, two questions. Feel free to just take up one of them. Uh, so first one is along the lines of Richard's suggestion Professor to Volha talk about Charnish. other linguistic shifts that happened at the time. Right. So when I think about the proportion of use in using United States is to general mentions, I'm also thinking... Uh, you know, about separating the numerator and denominator. And to me, the very kind of focus on the United States as an entity is or, you know, whatever the, uh, uh, what, whatever follows is a sign of thinking about the United States as a whole, right? So I'm curious if you looked at uh, just mentions of the United States as opposed to other possible terms that could be used and how that varies uh, by North and South, because I could see, for example, after the war in the South, maybe the, the whole like mention of that entity is uh, occurs less, less frequently. Uh, so that's one question. And the second question is, I wonder if more could be done with the geography of newspapers um, based on what they are. Uh, you know, there could be some interesting patterns, particularly places that are near to the south but are still in the north, so places where the decisive battles were won or uh, maybe proximity to Washington or, you know, something. I, the idea is very vague, but I think that perhaps uh, more interesting things could be done with focusing on this local uh, nature of newspapers, particularly because you're focusing on letters to the editor, which are very localized. Thanks. Yeah. So on the second... Um my dream was to do uh, an analysis that looked at how mentions varied based on proximity to Sherman's march to sea. And to my uh, regret, um, unfortunately, the newspapers are not clustered in places that would let me do that with any degree of confidence. So I used to have a picture of backup slides that would show you the sort of where the papers were, uh, where the headquarters cities are. Um, so we just don't get that sort of rich county coverage. Um, did you want to hop in on that point? Yeah, I, just, I, I think you want to be careful about whether you can do it or not is one thing, but um, Sherman's march north from 
the, the coast to Virginia was much cooler on the population than Sherman's margin. Professor Barry Posen. You're looking for variation. I think you have to actually focus on how the battles were conducted in the South, how much collateral damage there was in the South. If your mechanism for acceptance is one based on the experience of the war, even the surrender documents um, after that campaign are quite clear. Just say, look, we're beaten, we're beaten, beaten this way, that way, outnumbered, and we're outgunned. The soldiers are mutinying, they're leaving the army. This is the whole Confederate story. Right. So it seems like you would, you did, to, to, to figure out whether the, the, the mechanism of the war, actual A, the loss, and B, the destruction and pain, right, is, is, a, is an important variable. It seems to be the kind of that. Of course, the problem there is that one of the reasons Sherman was so cruel, Sherman was so cruel, is because they perceived these states as being the hotbed of insurrection. So there was a big right. revenge motive, at least historians attribute a big revenge motive to the Union soldiers in, the, in that sense. Yeah, yeah, point taken. Um, the other variant that I was thinking about was basically exposure to battle, because we have that, like, that data exists. We don't have it with us, but the data exists. And again, like, I take your point that like it might, it, it sort of captures something different or the idea is like separate from whether or not we can do it, but it turns out we can't do it. So it's moved. Um, on, see, Volia, you asked about mentions of the United States as a whole. Yeah, so just right. United States as such by itself, as opposed to states without United or, you know, we or whatever the, the place names. Right. I'm so glad you asked me about that because that is the follow-on paper that we are writing. Um, so what you were referring to is grammatical subject mentions of polities. And um, from conversations that I've had with some linguists, it's it turns out that uh, polities did not... It's a relatively modern development that a polity will occupy the grammatical subject position of a sentence. Right? That is, it never used to be the case that we would never say things like Britain did X or the United States went to war or Russia invaded Ukraine. It did not, this is a relatively, in the long like study of languages, it's a relatively recent development. Um, my instinct, uh, perhaps reflecting my bias as a scholar of the state, is that um, the grammatical subject mentioned, the sort of increasing frequency of that, corresponds to the greater presence of the state in people's lives in sort of an administrative regulatory sense, right? So like, you know that I study some, that I study state presence in sort of a physical um, sense, but that some of my work is also about sort of increasing regulatory and administrative presence. But I think that probably that is what's driving the increased usage of the grammatical subject. So some of these linguists say that Grammatical subject mentions actually reflect animacy, right? That the state is a thing that is animate. And I'm thinking now to sort of the old school comparative politics debates about the autonomy of the state. Um, but also that in some cases the state even has agency, right? And so in this follow-on paper, we actually want to explore whether it is the case that grammatical subject mentions are in fact reflecting increased sort of state activity. And that's where we really hope to clean up the OCR. Our ambition is to redo a significant amount of the OCR, then apply these much more sophisticated techniques that will identify parts of speech. Um, so I'm glad to hear that there's interest in this. 
Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Melissa. This was a super interesting um, paper. Uh, the, I kind of have two things, one of which has been brought up a couple of times, so I'll go really fast. Uh, I agree it would be really interesting to see if you can kind of uh, look at other ways of talking about the country in order to maybe partial out the like, grammatical standardization that's happening over the, the 19th century. The thing that I would say struck me is that I was pretty compelled by the evidence you presented about this discontinuity around the war. And then when you zoom out and look at the plot that goes from 1800 to 1900, it got me thinking two things. One is, well, grammatical standardization of American English is like really in its infancy at the start of your time period. And so I don't have strong expectations about what that would mean in terms of uh, you know, the, the political import of using one or the other way of talking about the United States. And then the other thing that I was thinking is, you know, the these like the politics of, of language disputes, I wonder how long their shelf life is. Uh, so the quote from the Washington Post, I found super compelling to say that this uh, choice had a lot of political meaning at that time. And then I wonder... Um, how long do you have a sense of when that proxy kind of like expires as a good indicator of a person's political beliefs or a person's, you know, opinion about the locus of sovereignty? I would say just like my guess is that it doesn't matter so much now just because the grammar has been so standardized. And so there's some period of time in between 1865 and now when it stops being as much of a, a political question. Um, and then the last thing is I would just be really interested to uh, see if these same kind of patterns held up with a, you know, totally different uh, grammatical construction, which I realize is a lot of work, but uh, possessive mentions um, of the nation or the country or the United States or something like that. But yeah, thanks very much. I think this was really cool and a very clever paper. I really like the idea of possessive mentions. I have to say we didn't think of that one before. So I'm going to flag it, see if there's some something to it. Um, the linguistic standardization point, I think, actually speaks to a scope condition question. Right? One of the, the interesting things about the United States education system is that we don't have a national education system, right? So the national government has much less influence over what is taught in schools compared to other polities, right? Um, so I would say that this is probably this particular kind of way of talking about our polity is not something that will transfer easily to polities where I think the national government can control the content of local education. Um, on the politics of language disputes, I do think they have a shelf life. In this specific case, um, there's two things going on. So the, the transformation is complete sometime in the early 20th century. Partly that's just a ceiling effect Right, there's just like relatively few people left who are not using the, the, the grammatical plural. Partly that's because the most like, embittered members of the Confederacy are no longer in the Congress or have died, right? So they are gone. Um, and additionally, the outbreak of World War I, right? Another kind of traumatic event that I think 
um, scholars have rightly pointed to affecting how Americans think about themselves as a nation and their place in the world. Right? And so I think that, that for sure puts a shelf life, you know, an expiration date on this particular linguistic transformation. Um, hard to say what would have happened in the absence of World War I, right? Um, but I do think that ceiling effects suggest that this was going to taper off. I'm going to um, start speed dating around to uh, <laughs> both Kyle and Maria sitting close to each other and have questions, please. The question was already asked. Oh, okay. Um, then I will group uh, uh, Maria and Eric. That's your relative. And you're next with um, uh, Eric and Eva. No, I, I should be quick. So this is um, in part my two finger that I phrased really badly. But I'm really looking at the idea of sovereignty itself, right? And you frame this paper as saying that we can draw this distinction between institutional sovereignty and imagined sovereignty. Mm -hmm. But the main effect that you show in the data is that the very people Professor who are creating Maria the Grinberg. institutions of sovereignty are the ones for whom this imagined sovereignty effect is happening. So I'm wondering to what extent are you actually showing that there's a separation between the two versus the people for who imagined the nation are the ones who created the nation and sovereignty is still this united concept. Thanks so much for sharing this. Uh, so my question is actually kind of related to uh, Maria's about kind of elite effects. Uh, so I'm wondering if, you know, in a future project, there's any value in actually looking at whether these kind of the, the grammatical changes are actually reflected in government documents as well, both at the state and federal level, because that might let you Professor get at some Eric of this question as to whether the public is leading the elite, the elite are, are kind of leading the public. And then I guess perhaps allows you to integrate some questions about kind of institutional changes and these ideational ones. So less of a question than a comment. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Um, Okay, so I apologize for misinterpreting your question the first time around. Um, yes, it's true that the people who are creating the institutions and making policy via those institutions are the ones who are the fastest at imagining a sovereignty of the United States that is whole, that is consolidated and embedded in the national government. But I think if it was only those individuals, then we should not see the changes in the newspapers as well, because the newspapers, again, most of the content is not political. Um, like having sat there and read a bunch of these myself, myself, I mean, they covered everything from like local crime to, in the case of California, um, like a really important citrus festival and it's Californian citrus is important, so I get it. Um, you know, so like a lot of mundane stuff happening and they just happened to mention the United States in a completely non-political way, and you do see this change, right? So I, I think it just, it cannot be reduced to just people who are in positions of power shaping the institutions of sovereignty and imagining the sovereignty in a certain way. Um, if, if the evidence was only from those individuals, then I would really hesitate to say this is a story about the popular imagination. Um, and so I hope that answers the question uh, better this time. Uh, and Eric, uh, definitely should try that. I actually, I'm trying to think of like, how, if I've seen government documents that use the U.S. in a grammatical subject position in that way. Um, but I don't know. So I'm, I'm really eager to go look. Thank you. The next pair of questions will be Eric Higginbotham and Jim Walsh. 
Eric Higginbotham, that was a fascinating talk. Thanks very much. Um, so we've all heard the historian sort of statement that the United States was plural and then became uh, singular after the war. I, I was struck by three things in your talk. The, the third and second, maybe most important, the, the sectional Dr. shift Eric and, and the role of entrepreneurs, which I found compelling. But the most important sort of takeaway for me from this, at least as far as sort of historical observation and trends are concerned, is that the historians are absolutely wrong. You said both the historians and the literary analysts were correct. But, you know, my takeaway would be the historians are wrong. The bigger pattern is that there's a long term, powerful, uh, enduring shift from 1800 to at least 1900 in our treatment of the state that probably has more to do with other things, you know, institutional change in the role of government in people's lives and these other correlates that you mentioned uh, with regard to modernization. So in any case, uh, that's not to say, I mean, you're obviously you're focused on the effects of the war. So and it and there are some and it's very interesting. But I would want to hear a little bit more about what the other correlates are uh, there as sort of background condition and, and whether or not you think that characterization is, is correct. Thanks. Yeah. Well, I think it's a fun and interesting and innovative project, and I enjoyed your talk. I want to give one quick reaction and ask one substantive question. Yeah. The reaction is an emotional one, so that you're getting sort of an N of one here about how I'm feeling when I'm hearing you talk about it as a communicator. I'm willing to buy Dr. Jim the Walsh. change in grammar is somehow a good metric for telling us what's happening. I'm open to that and I'm willing to accept it. But the feeling I have is one of wariness because I feel like there's ever compounding numbers of uncertainties in the method. Now, we all deal with Whitehead saying, you know, the territory the map is not the territory, but you start with this one grammatical metric. I don't know how good grammatical metrics are in the past at performing for, for being able to predict these sort of cultural changes. Is it good? Is it bad? It's not 100%. It's X. And then because you're wonderfully transparent, admirably so, about your inferential challenges, each one of those requires a workaround that introduces another element of uncertainty. And I think they start to pile up. That's what I, that's sort of, I want to believe it, but I, that's why I'm wary. The um, comment or the question, where's reconstruction in all this? Like, I don't know crap about reconstruction and all I know is from Foner. I haven't read it in a while, but it doesn't seem like, and maybe I missed it in the data that that's what, for that 12 years, there is an institutional footprint, even if it's not having ideational effects. Shouldn't that show up somewhere? you know, as we look at the data? And if not, what does that mean? Okay. Um, let me get start with the sort of uh, validity of the measure. I think this is why we're not coming out swinging really hard against the historians, right? So my first instinct was there is a really long-run shift here. And at least some of the historians of the Civil War wrote very confidently about how the war really wiped out this idea of multiple sovereignties. It wiped out the use of the union and it wiped out the plural. You know, and I didn't, given all of the concerns that you've just raised, we did not feel like it was appropriate for us to say, well, the historians are wrong. You know, like we have to, like clearly we are right and they're wrong. We wanted to be much more circumspect about what we found, right? And to also acknowledge that there is, a bit of debate among historians, right? That the Civil War historians are a little bit different in their perspectives than the ones who take a much more long run view of 
uh, American political development in this time period. That's that's part of the reason why we're like not pushing that view so hard. I think I think I, I do stand by this contention that both sides are right, right? That there is a transformative moment, but that moment did not eradicate the idea of the union, it did not eradicate the grammatical plural. As for grammar, um, with apologies to Rich, I used to be a skeptic of text analysis. <laughs> you know, I think like thinking about Rich's work, and then I guess five, six, seven years ago, Rich, no, I was gonna say Rich actually helps come, uh, and he will probably, if he wants to chime in on this, he will remember that I've asked him for help in thinking about how to do text analysis, right? Like sort of, I really actually attribute to my first foray into textual analysis because of a conference that Rich and I were on. you remember, I think it was at Harvard. Um, and so I think I've slowly sort of come around to this idea that like we can learn something about how people speak. Being an IR trained person, I was like, oh, speech is just cheap talk. Like, you know, we don't, what matters is behavior. And I've really come around to this view that like what we say, how we say it, and to who we say it matters, right? Um, but I wouldn't go as far as saying that grammar, like looking at these kind of shifts is always right. I think it's right in this situation, given the lack of alternative measures. Right? We can't go and ask Americans. Right? So we're trying to triangulate as best we can what uh, might map on sort of how, the, how they might think about sovereignty. And that's why we have this really careful three-step conceptual validity approach that appeals to authority, that looks at the Confederacy, and that looks at primary source mentions. So, you know, I think for us, uh, particularly the Confederacy evidence is compelling. So we went and did the same exercise looking for grammatical singular and plural mentions of the Confederacy. And that's for us what nailed it, right? That this is mapping onto that concept. But I would not say grammar is always going to be right. Like as someone who cares deeply about measurement, um, I, I just really hesitate to say this is always right and always in all situations. So I also want to believe, I hope that we have been convincing, but again, you mentioned the transparency, and part of the reason we're doing that is so that readers can make their own conclusions. Um, where is Reconstruction? So I think we might be out of time, but let me just answer this question about Reconstruction. So the South is not, uh, has not been readmitted. So there are no, and once they are, um, so when they have representation during, uh, during this period, they are not free to elect their representatives, right? So there is federal troops in the South and the individuals who represent the Southern states largely reflect the views of the North as victors. So I think in backup slides, we did have a slide that actually uh, uh, brought evidence to bear. But basically we think the reconstruction period, particularly for the speech data, cannot be compared in the same way. So we're very, very hesitant to draw conclusions on that period. Great. Wonderful. Um, Thank you. All right, time, uh, please join me in Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Wednesdays at SSP. This is Chris Burns signing off.